0: Hi, I'm Jen Drummond. Welcome to Seek Your Summit. As a mom, a business owner, and the first female to climb the seven second summits, I realize that the mountains we climb are a part of our success. And it is up to us to go beyond that success into a life of significance. Listen in as I share personal stories and interview others who have led a life of both success and significance, and now they are paying it forward. Today, we have Sean Swarner on the podcast, and I am telling you, he's one of those people that makes me feel like a slouch, okay? So can't wait to introduce him to you and share all the things that he has accomplished because you have no excuses after this episode. Sean, thanks for coming on today.
1: I appreciate it. I'm super excited.
0: Yes. Okay, so what came first? The lung issue or the cancers, or how did, like, give me the evolution of where you are today health-wise.
1: Absolutely. The first, my, my first answer was the egg.
0: The egg. Okay.
1: You said what came first? The chicken. <laughs> Anyhow, really bad joke. Um, the, the lung issue came during the cancer treatment. Okay. So I was diagnosed at 13, advanced stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma. And believe it or not, I mean, I know you have you have kids, but can you imagine the doctor coming in and saying your child now has three months to live?
0: I can't even imagine at thirteen.
1: Yeah, so that's that's exactly what they told my parents. Like, you he, Sean now has an expiration date. I mean, I know we all have an expiration date eventually,
0: right, but,
1: but three months. You know, how would you
0: take it as a thirteen-year-old? Like, I have a thirteen-year-old. I can't even imagine having that conversation with him.
1: You know, great question. And, and I honestly, looking back at it now, being the age that my parents roughly were when I got sick, I honestly think it was, it was more difficult on them. Because if you look at a, a child on the cusp of their teen years, right, on the cusp of, of life, essentially, 13 years old, you really don't fully understand the ramifications of what cancer could mean. You know, I don't, I didn't understand I, I, death, right? What does that really mean to a 13 a year old, 14 year old? You know, they have an idea, oh, it's over, but what does that really mean? So my parents couldn't get in my mind. They couldn't take the cancer away. They couldn't encourage me to continue fighting. They couldn't cur- encourage me and empower me to do this one at a time, you know, one day at a time. So I honestly, I think it was worse on them than it was on me. Because for me, it just became normal. Right. But I also remember, I remember being 60, 70 pounds overweight one day. Not like it happened over one day, but you know, I remember that one day when I was 60, 70 pounds overweight, I was sitting on the side of my bed and I went into the bathroom and I looked at myself in the mirror and it was the first time I realized, because up until that point, I had been an athlete you know, swimmer, cross country runner track, I pole vaulted, you know, I I did it all. And I remember looking at myself in the mirror, 60 pounds overweight, my hair was starting to come out in clumps and I couldn't even recognize who I was.
0: You
1: know, and, and it was, it was devastating because there was nothing left of who I was inside. The hope was gone. The drive was gone. The desire was gone. Everything would disappear. And then I remember just starting to tear up and then going into the shower and literally collapsing on my hands and knees. And so much hair came out. It clogged up the drain. The drain started, the the water level started rising up. And I remember being on my hands and knees, 60 pounds overweight, pulling chunks of hair out of the drain so the water could go down while I was bawling my eyes out realizing hey i have to fight for my life or give up and die mm-hmm. so that was the that was the first step realizing that i i had two choices to either move on with my life or let it go okay you know, not, a, not a choice a 13 year old wants to deal with
0: no i can't imagine and at 13 you felt like even though they said three months you felt like hey i have the ability to fight this and so i need to either fight it or i need to just like let go
1: absolutely. And I, and I also think that I developed a different perspective than most people. I mean, think, think back, well, think about your, your kid now, uh, getting ready for school. What's in their mind is, Oh, you know, where am I going to sit at lunch? You know, the things that they're worried about, you know, I, I, I want to have the most, the most popular clothes the nicest shoes, nicest hairstyles, whatever it might be. I realized that I I, I didn't, for me, that didn't matter because there were night after night, I was terrified to go to bed because I wasn't sure my eyes were going to open up the next day. So my perspective was a little different. And I think it goes back to being in that shower where I realized I didn't want to focus on not dying. I wanted to focus on living, Mm -hmm. you know, as opposed to avoiding something, I wanted to be focused on what I wanted, not the avoidance of what I didn't want.
0: Yeah. That's powerful.
1: Yeah, And it was just one day after another, just keeping that attitude and that mindset that I think came from my parents when I was a swimmer, they would, they would always be at the end of the pool, say as a six-year-old, you know, swimming a twenty twenty five 25 meter breaststroke, you know, touch the wall. They would pull me out and they would ask me, did you do your best? And did you have fun?
0: Nice. Do you ask yourself those questions to this day? Did I do my best? And Am I having fun when you go to bed?
1: It, ab- absolutely. When I go to bed, I actually I, I designed a journal myself. Okay. I look back there like it was going to be a magical journal, but I designed a journal myself where I write down five things that happened today that okay. I'm grateful for, and then I journal about one of them to help me tap back into my personal core values to help me stay focused on what matters most to me.
0: I like that. Okay, so when were you? in remission or whatever. They, they don't really call it cured of cancer because I'm remission, remission cured, right? So you're remission. When were you in remission that first time?
1: The first, I was in remission the first time at about 14. So I was a roughly a year, year and a half in chemotherapy. Okay. And lost, like I said, lost my hair, lost my friends, lost everything. And I, I, mm-hmm. I just wasn't me, but then I was in remission for roughly a year. Okay. And like, I was, I was probably the only child and only kid in school who, who wanted to be in school? I mean, I was tired of the hospital. Like I wanted to be in school.
0: <laughs>
1: Absolutely, but then I was uh, a year in remission, being normal. When I was going in for a checkup for the first cancer, is when they found a second cancer, completely unrelated to the first one. Really? Yeah. Two two primary cancers. No one's ever had these two before, and the chances. Well. The second one I was diagnosed is called Askins sarcoma, okay. which is a, a smaller branch of what's called Ewing sarcoma, which if you know anyone who's, who's had cancer, gone through anything like that, they know the medical terms. So it just like rolls off the tongue. It was primitive neuroectodermal fibroma and exactly, or PNET at the time, primitive neuroectodermal tumor. And the prognosis for that is roughly 6%. Wow, three out of a million people get this very, this rare disease, and no one's ever had Hodgkins and Askin sarcoma before. And the crazy thing is, the chances of me surviving both of them is roughly the same uh, chances that you have winning the lottery four times in a row with the same numbers. What? <laughs> yeah.
0: Wow, that's amazing. Okay, so. Did you lose access to your lung on the second one?
1: I did. That's where the lung comes in. So I went through three months of intense radiation or chemotherapy. I went through three months of intense radiation. I went through three months of intense chemotherapy, one month of radiation, then 10 more months of chemotherapy. And that one month of radiation was just a bombardment of gamma going through my lung. You know, now they have like, they can pinpoint. But back then it was just, Hey, we're going to bombard this much section because a tumor was this big. We just need to get everything around it, blast through. And that created so much scar tissue in my right lung that I don't have any oxygen transfer into my body. So it's essentially like, have you ever seen the movie Finding Nemo? Yes. Yeah. So he has his little lucky fin. I kind of joke around, like I have my little lucky lung in there that holds me me together.
0: (laughs) Oh my gosh. Now, does your other lung compensate, do lungs compensate for each other when one doesn't work as well? Or is it always, you're gonna always have a lower VO2 max?
1: You know, that's, it's an interesting question. And I remember coming out of surgery and the doctor told me I had like this thing that was on whatever those tables are that they put the food tray on that you swing into so you can eat dinner while you're in the hospital bed. I remember waking up and seeing this blue tube with like a corrugated Mm
0: -hmm.
1: breath thing. I don't know what it's called in there. And I had to inhale. And he put a little Sharpie marker and said, once you get past there, which will take about two weeks, then you can leave the hospital. And I remember focusing on it so much. I was gone in like five days. Like I'd hit that mark in five days. Like I'm out of here. Like I was tired of being in the hospital. Right. But ever since then, I have been really focused on how to breathe. Okay. You know, most people, they get nervous. They start breathing. They don't even think about it. It comes naturally.
0: And they like, you can watch them. They breathe like just in their throat. You're like, no, no, no. You got to get this all the way in this (laughs) box. Yes. Yeah.
1: So over time, I think what's happened uh, developmentally, I can't show you here, but my left side, which now I think is protruded out a little bit because it's amazing how the body adapts, the human body adapts. My rib cage comes out a little bit further than my right side.
0: Okay. You're expanding those lungs to max capacity for what they can do.
1: Absolutely.
0: Wow. Okay. So having this lung issue, so you have a single lung, you survived these two cancers. When are you done with cancer number two? How old
1: are you? 17. So let's yeah, just round it out and say I had cancer from 13 to 18 years old, right before I went into college.
0: Right. So your high school years, essentially. And That'd then you real. went to college. How often do you have to go now to get tested?
1: Once a year. Because no one's ever had these cancers, they don't know what's going to happen. So I go in once a year for blood work, you know, annual checkup, and I see it as another year to live.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How old are you today? Can we
1: ask? Yeah, 49.
0: Okay. Amazing. Okay, so what's even more amazing is defied a grim 14 day life expectancy become the first cancer survivor to conquer Mount Everest. What's the 14 day piece?
1: I The second cancer, I was given 14 days to live. What? S- your I remember- first
0: cancer was three months and your second cancer was two weeks?
1: Two weeks. I re- I remember laying in the hospital and a man of the cloth came in. He, start, he, read, he started reading me my last rites. Oh my goodness. And I remember very, very vividly. My mom was on this side, my dad was over here. And you know, the guy, the man of the cloth, was down there doing his thing. And I looked at my mom, looked at him, and I was just like, what's he doing? Right? Like, I'm not dead yet. They wanted to put me in hospice. They wanted me to write out, the hospital wanted me to write out a living will. And I have a younger brother who's three years younger than I am. And I looked at them, my mom and my dad, I was like, well, isn't my brother gonna get my hand-me-downs anyhow? Like, like what does the hospital want from a 16-year-old?
0: Right, right.
1: So I was given 14 days to live. And I was also, because the treatments were so harsh, the doctors didn't want me to remember them. Every time I was in the hospital for that three month, I was very lucid and awake for that one month I mentioned with the radiation. Okay. And then for 10 more months, that three-month and 10-month section of my 16-, 17-year-old life, yeah. they knocked me out. I was in a medically-induced coma for about a year. I don't remember being 16.
0: Wow. Okay, so that's when the medically-induced coma was. And that was just a way to, like, it gave you the best chance of surviving is how they, they figured it
1: Exactly. They didn't want me to remember how bad the treatments were. And what's, what's crazy is, you know, everywhere I go now, I, I try to visit local hospitals and talk to the patients and the survivors and stuff like that. And even when you're in a coma, your brain's still functioning, right? I mean, you have to breathe. You have to, your digestive system has to work. And every once in a while, I'll be somewhere and I'll smell something that triggers a memory that I didn't even know I had.
0: Wow.
1: And, and I'll, I'll look at my, the person who's with me, you know, they call my a handler. I'll, I'll look at my handler. Like, I got to go. Like, and it'll bring back this deep seated emotional memory. And I, I get back to the hotel and I'll bury my face in the pit. I'll lose it. You know, oh. I, can, I couldn't handle it.
0: Wow. Again, right. Like I'm sitting here as a parent trying to decide, is it worse as the kid is worse as the parent? <laughs> it's worse all the way around. And I'm sorry. There's just not a good way around it. Um, Okay. So did you decide to do Everest first and then take on the grand slam or did you do some of the other mountains first, then work up to Everest and then decide the grand slam?
1: Everest was one. Everest was number one. I was actually, Everest was
0: number one. Okay. Yeah.
1: I was, I was working on my master and my doctorate. I wanted to be a psychologist for cancer patients because as we all know, cancer is not an individual journey. You know, the family goes through it, loved ones, everything. And I literally wanted to be the, the first, first cancer survivor to climb on Everest. And I wanted to use it as a platform to give hope back to the people touched by cancer.
0: Right. I totally understand. How was it for you climbing Everest? Did you summit the first attempt?
1: Number one, man, it was that, was it was the weather. The crazy thing is going up for the summit push. We were supposed to summit on May 15th, but when we were at camp three, i came to i was sick like I, I remember vomiting what i had the night before i could still see the, the spiral noodles the cubed carrots Yeah, yeah the robins, the robins
0: yes. that we live on
1: yeah awesome. but but that was a blessing in disguise because everybody else who was on the same schedule went to camp four and went up for the summit weather turned bad they they were all forced off the mountain oh, But then i woke up the next day slept on oxygen i didn't move from camp three for an entire day we were okay. a day behind everyone else the weather window opened up on May 16th. Beautiful. Slight breeze in the top.
0: Ah, you sucker. That's scene. Yeah. Yes. Well, we were on Everest and we were at the top. We had 10 minutes and we weren't allowed to take off our masks for photos because they're afraid they're going to freeze. Because it was that bad and that cold. They're like, if you wow. take this off and the cold gets into that front side where you just had moisture, moisture you're going to get ice on the inside and it's going to lock up. And we're like, okay, so here we are, and all of our face masks taking her photos. So then when you got um, down from Everest, how fast did you say, hey, I want to take on these others?
1: I would say it took a few months because I'm sure as you know, you get down, you you slowly forget about all the bad stuff, how awful it was. And you start remembering, oh, that was so much fun. You know, type B fun. You know, In the moment, you're like, oh God, this is awful. But then you get home, you start thinking, and it was kind of fun.
0: Yeah, that <laughs> pretty cool. Did you ever feel like when yeah. I was done with some of the climbs, I had moments where I was sad, like the climb was done. Did you ever have moments where I was like, oh, man, I wish I was on the pursuit of it instead of on the backside of it?
1: Interesting you ask, because when I completed the Explorers Grand Slam, I got to the North Pole and I'm thinking, you know, now what? I was. I was. I was depressed for a couple months. Now, granted, I proposed to my wife on a satellite phone from the North Pole, so ah, that, that was that's cool. Awesome. That's so but, cool. but yeah, and and every woman does, you know, dreams of being proposed to by a guy on a phone from thousands of miles away, right?
0: <laughs> you have the rest of your life to make that up to her. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. Exactly. But I, you're right. I was depressed.
0: Yeah. No, I remember. Like, I mean, I just finished this pursuit in June of this year, and. I you read about it, but I wasn't expecting it. And then it came and you're just like, Oh wow, okay. At least yeah. I know this is normal. So there we go. What made you get into Iron Man then?
1: You know, I remember laying in the hospital bed, going through the second cancer. Okay. And exactly. I remember watching somebody finish the Iron Man and I told myself, if I got better, I was gonna finish that race. Yeah. To, it was just a goal that I've always wanted. I, I had always been a runner. I've always been a swimmer. I still have That's records from pff, 1988. That's awesome. You know? And I figured, well, how difficult can it be to add a bike? You're sitting down. Right. So it turned out to be a lot more difficult than I thought, but <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> the transition, right? The transitions are real. Yeah. When your legs are going like this forever and all of a sudden you need them to do a different movement pattern. Yeah. They're like, forget you. I'm not doing that. <laughs>
1: I, I wanted to, I, it was just, it was a personal goal that I, uh, that I always had.
0: No, I think that's awesome. And so did you, you got to do Ironman Hawaii of all of them? Like a lot of times you have to qualify for that one.
1: You have to qualify unless you're one of the media spots.
0: Got it. Okay.
1: But I did have to prove myself by doing a uh, half Ironman. I did the half Ironman It it was the Vineman half Ironman in the Sonoma area, which I don't think I could have picked a prettier place to do the the half Ironman.
0: Those half Ironmans, I got into those for a while and I just did racecations, right? Because I'm like, I want to go there. There's a reason I'm going to go do the Ironman and do this. And then I would, you know, that's how I picked them as where I wanted to go. I did one in, um, how was it? Santa Rosa area. And I did not anticipate it being so cold out of the water to get on the bike because it wasn't warmed up yet from the California sun. And you went down that coastline. I was like, oh my gosh, I could be in a down Parker right now and it wouldn't be warm enough. crazy. Okay, so these heroic events. You've written a book. Talk to us about the book.
1: Well, I wrote a book when I got done with Everest. It was called Keep Climbing. I have another book out that's more recent. And it, it guides people to utilize their own personal core values to climb their own Everest, you know, conquering your own Everest, which as you know, you never conquer the mountain, you, you conquer yourself. Exactly. Because if it's you versus mother nature, you're not going to win that battle. <laughs> She's going to take it out.
0: <laughs> One, Sorry, every time. Don't even exactly. start to play that game.
1: <laughs> exactly. So it's it's more about helping others because, you know, you you would understand this too. I've, I've never conquered, I've never made it to the summit of any significant peak by myself. Right. You know, going through the cancers, going through the climbing, anything. And even if I did, I get to the top. Yay. Self high five.
0: I know. I know. Right. I think that's one of the biggest lessons I've taken away from climbing is big mountains, take big teams. Absolutely. And you want big teams because it's what makes it fun and enjoyable. And it's, it's like, that's how you celebrate
1: absolutely and in the book conquering your Everest it helps people see the future happening now so I'm a big believer in the mind-body connection you know and and one of my favorite quotes: is it always seems impossible until it's done right and people need to believe and see it in their mind's eye and create that connection before they do it. And this book helps them figure out why they want to do it and what it means to them. Because when you get to the top of a mountain, you know, there are going to be other peaks to climb. You cross that finish line, there are going to be other races. So going back to not being depressed, why are you doing it? What does it mean to you? Does it mean freedom? Does it mean security? Does it mean clarity? Does it mean you know you can support your family looking at the business side of things? Once you tap into your personal core value, you now, you're now now empowered with an underlying desire that will never disappear. Mm
0: -hmm. Right. Motivation comes and goes. But when you have that deep core seated, why it just, it doesn't change. It's, it's nature, right? This is my thing that I'm going to anchor into and conquer from. I love it. Is that how, how would you come up with the big hill challenge? Talk to us a little bit about that. It's, it's
1: interesting. So the, the big hill challenge is a three week mental wellness challenge. And you don't have to climb anything. There's nothing physical about it. People are like, oh, I could never do that. But we all have mountains to climb. We all have hills we're going up. And, and no matter how much you train, how hard you train, going uphill never becomes easy. Right. It becomes easier, right? Yeah. So the idea of the Big Hill Challenge came from two different things. One, every year I take a group up Kilimanjaro as a fundraiser for a cancer charity.
0: Yeah. Right? And what this- you after- that? Sorry? What time of year do you take people?
1: We always go in the summer. Okay. So it's a dry season. We don't have to worry about the weather. I've I've been up there in the rainy season. It's just not pleasant. It's one of those things that we talked about earlier. You get home, you're like, oh my God, that was awful. But as time goes on, you're like, yeah, it's kind of fun. You forget the bad stuff.
0: Yeah. I'm taking my boys in February. So I think we're going to have some rain, but we'll see. Yeah,
1: but you should be fine. Hopefully you'll be fine. You know, Mother Nature, she needs to get a new calendar. The rainy season is starting later, lasting longer, but the... The, the Kilimanjaro trip, I've been up there now 24 times, um, and the average success rate on the mountain is 48% because the clients want to go up and down up and down, so quickly. Like, take your time. Enjoy your journey. My groups are at 99% success rate. Wow. I, I was adopted into the local Chugga tribe. I'm like—I'm literally a member of their families now. So nice. everyone who goes with us, they treat us like brothers and sisters. That's amazing.
0: So what rub do you take
1: we always go up Machami.
0: Okay, that's what we're going to do. We're going to do like eight days because I'm bringing my boys. Do you think that's enough?
1: That That's plenty. I would suggest seven. Okay. You can, you can even cut it, cut it down a day. Some people do that route and do it six. But if you do seven, you're going to stay in a, a camp called Karanga Camp. You go down into the Karanga Valley, up to the Karanga Valley, and then you can camp there. It's not a very pleasant camp because it's just, it's very exposed, but you should be fine in, in doing it in seven days. So you summit on the morning of the sixth. You leave on the evening of the fifth, wake up at like 10 30, 11 o'clock, leave at midnight, and then you'll summit anywhere between six and maybe 10, 10 30 on the morning of the sixth day. Okay. You go back down, rest at that camp, shoot back out to one of two camps, rest there, sleep, basically, and then you'll head out the next day, which will be the seventh day. Um, The eighth day, you might spend an extra day at one of the camps, either Shira Plateau or the Bronco Camp. Okay. But you you should be fine. It's even seven days. So then what we do, we we also take a Serengeti safari. We fly into the Serengeti, which is a lot of fun. It's beautiful. Um,
0: Have you gone to Zanzibar yet?
1: Yes. Yeah. The Spice Island is beautiful.
0: Okay. So my boys want to go surfing. So I wanted to fly there to take them surfing for a couple of days before we came back.
1: I don't know if you can, you might be able to surf there, but I know that when we were there, the ocean was really, really calm.
0: Yeah. So in February, it's their surfing month, which is why we do climbing during then. And then it's kind of like Hawaii. So Hawaii has surf waves in the winter, summer, it's flat as glass.
1: Ah, there you go. That'll be a lot of fun.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm kind of excited. Yeah, that'd be really
0: cool. Silent. Okay, I'll keep that that. We'll we'll talk about that more.
1: Yeah, and then stay at a place called when you fly in, stay at a place called the I think it's called Tembo Lodge or Tembo Hotel, maybe the Tembo Lodge. Tembo is is in Swahili means elephant. Okay. So the Tembo Lodge is just really pretty and it's just it's a Ready 30 there. second walk away from where um what's his name? The lead singer from Queen. Freddie Mercury. It's like a 30 second walk away from where Freddie Mercury was born.
0: Okay. Interesting. I like it. It's just fun to do these adventures with people, right? Like I just want my boys to have that experience of pushing through something hard. I wanted to take them up Mount Kenya cuz that's what I climbed, but when I took them on a test climb, I decided that was way too much. I'm like, you know <laughs> what? Kilimanjaro is a lot for a lot of people. We're just going to stick with Kilimanjaro. <laughs> so there
1: Absolutely. you go. Yeah, uh, you'll you'll have a great time. It's beautiful over there and the people are just tremendous. And let let me know if you're going into Moshi or if you're fly, if you're staying in Arusha. I can connect you up with some people there.
0: Okay. Moshi or Arusha. I will find out. That's cool, if we can do it in seven days, then we can um, add a charity day in. That's what I was trying to do, is put a charity day in so we could just volunteer somewhere and help out.
1: Yeah, if if you do go to Moshi, when I'm on the mountain, every time I'm up on the mountain, my wife, she has a charity, I'll, I'll have to send you the link because she has a charity that supports, for the past six years, she supported 100 orphans with food for the entire year.
0: Oh, wow, that's yeah. awesome, okay, cool. All right. We'll talk about that offline.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Okay. So you go around and you talk to audiences all over the world to help people live their best lives. What's one of the like flagship topics that you get asked to talk about that people you feel get the most benefit from?
1: It's interesting. Great question. It's interesting. A lot of leadership um, recently, I was approached by Google and Google said, hey, we're looking for an inspirational, motivational speaker. I was like, well, you got the wrong guy. I'm like, what are you talking about? Your story is incredibly inspiring. It's like, yeah, but as, as you mentioned, inspiration and motivation is fleeting. It's it's a temporary state. But if you can empower somebody and you want to bring in an empowering speaker and change their lives on an emotional level, then you got the right guy. So I usually start my presentations recently with a question it's like what if you could discover your innermost motivators so that you could accomplish your outermost desires and goals
0: that's a powerful question who doesn't say yes to that please sign me up lead me down the path
1: exactly and that's kind of what you mentioned earlier the big hill challenge does it it walks people through utilizing their own personal core values from a non judgmental standpoint. Because what I value is different from what you value, which is different from what my wife values. You know, she was born and raised in Puerto Rico, so she has different values. It doesn't matter who you are, you know, from a non judgmental standpoint. If if you value something fantastic, use it for your advantage to take care of yourself to accomplish great things.
0: What are common core values that you've seen people?
1: Everybody in their top 10, they have family, health, wealth. But then once you get past that, that's where people get interesting. So I actually, mine are written down here. I have a few of them that I have written down right by my computer. Clarity, love, appreciation, freedom, and security. So whenever I'm going after something... uh, Say a couple presentations, you know, per month, whatever it might be. I I want the clarity of why I'm doing it, right? I want the love and appreciation that I'm giving for others, but mainly, it's it's also the security knowing that I'm making money and it has nothing to do with money, but taking care of my family. Right. So when people understand, a perfect example, I was giving a a talk at a billionaires uh, mastermind class, and I was up on stage after we doing an interview and there was a guy in the audience. He has, I don't know, three or four different private jets, you know, houses all over the world, multi-billionaire. And I stopped and I was like, you know, Vic, why are you here? And he's like, well, to network. I was like, but why? He's like, well, to make more money. I was like, but why? Like you have more money than God. Like what, what are you, what are you doing here? Like, well, and we kept peeling back those layers and we found out that it wasn't about the money. It wasn't about the family or it wasn't about the, the networking. It was about the family. like, because I want to make sure I can give my family, my kids, the life they deserve. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's why you're here. <laughs> you know, that's why you're here. You want to take care of your family. It has nothing to do with the money. What does that money represent? What does that success that you're going after represent? Why are you going after those mountain peaks? What does that represent to you?
0: Yeah.
1: Figure that out and then use that because whatever situation you're in, no matter how dire it may seem, no matter how exhausted you are, you're going to have an underlying purpose to push you forward.
0: Definitely. And so when family was his purpose to push forward, sorry. <laughs> we have new kittens. everybody (laughs) that's listening can see this little curveball that's watching um when someone selects family then that gives them the energy when things get hard or when things get like confusing or the setbacks or the obstacles and that helps them plug into that piece so that's why you clarified into that word and they're like oh i'm Because for me, when I was climbing, family was definitely for me. Mm -hmm. I had a picture of my kids. Anytime I got hard, I'd pull that photo out. I'd reconnect to each one of them. And then I would be, okay, this next 30 minutes is for Jack. This next 30 minutes is for Joe. And I'm just going to talk to them and send them good things and think about them and continue forward. And that gave me the resilience to do that. That's why you go through this exercise. So people can find their, their core and then it helps them resilience when things get hard.
1: Absolutely. And I I think for me, it stemmed from being that 13-year-old boy who was on his hands and knees fighting for his life from the bottom of the shower floor, sobbing and weeping. And I remember picturing into the future, what would my parents' lives be like if they lost their firstborn son? Right. Right. And I was like, I can't do that to them. Yeah. My my family means more to me than anything. Mm Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to let that happen.
0: That's amazing. What happens when you're on the expeditions and I got hard? What would you tap into?
1: The lessons I learned going through the treatments. Okay. Earlier times in my life, you know, understanding that if if I'm on the mountain or say trekking to the North Pole or skiing to the North Pole, I can always pick up the satellite phone and say, "Hey, you know, I'm not feeling it today. Get me out of here." Insurance kicks in, life flight, whatever, helicopter, out you know, but the people who are battling for their lives in the hospital bedrooms, laying on the hospital bed, literally fighting for their lives, they can't pick up the phone and say, you know, I really, I'm really not feeling it today. Right. You know, I'm, I'm going I'm, to, I'll, I'll come back next year. They don't have that option. So if, if those people could fight for their lives and move forward, I can handle the elements. Yeah. we deal and i also picture myself being in that hospital bed as a young child how would that young child feel if i gave up
0: yeah it is it's so true just changing that little perspective all of a sudden gives you so much more air in your lung to be able to keep going it does
1: <laughs> absolutely and and you also you also realize that it could always be worse yeah
0: yep Okay, so you have uh, the Cancer Climber Association. That's what you form to climb Kilimanjaro every year. And you raise money and you guys like obviously help the culture over there like your wife does with the charity there. And then what do you do over here with the funds that you raise?
1: So we actually pay for a survivor's trip every year.
0: Really? All, All
1: covered. But it's the responsibility of that survivor to then raise funds for next year's survivor
0: oh right we talked okay we talked about yeah it. So, yeah, yeah that's right. really cool the way that keeps paying it forward
1: exactly. exactly so it's really cool seeing you know say pretend my hands are people this person made it to the summit of Kilimanjaro, going through the journey they went through and this person is going up the mountain this yeah. this guy raised money for this this person and now she has to go up the mountain but it's really cool to see how they connect and the discussions they have on not just the physical journey going up the mountain, but also the mental journey and the, the the personal journey that they went through with the cancers.
0: Yeah, definitely. Wow. That's so cool. And how many people on your team when you go?
1: We've had anywhere between, during COVID, I took two groups of three. So three was the sh- smallest group. Okay. Um, but normally it's anywhere between six and the largest group was 31, which I'll never do again.
0: Oh my God. So, I can't imagine 31.
1: Wow. Uh, no, thank you. And it, we're, we cap it about fifteen.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Ah, I love it. Okay, so how do people get a hold of you? I mean, we can buy your book on Amazon. You, how do we find you for speaking? How do we join the Big Hill Challenge?
1: Easiest question you've asked yet. Yeah. They, <laughs> they can go to com, just like Sean Connery. The proper way of spelling Sean: S E A N Swaner. Dot com, And if they want the, the Big Hill Challenge, literally it is the com.
0: Okay. And how often do you run that per year?
1: It's, it's evergreen. You can sign up whenever you want to. It's oh, a self excited journey, but there are videos of me, emails. I mean, the whole thing is, it's amazing. Yeah. Well, e- right. Phenomenal. Right. yeah. But I've also taken groups of uh, executive CEOs through and we start on a certain date that works best for them.
0: Okay. So we can do it as a group of the corporate we, desire be there. Excellent. Well, Sean, thank you so much for joining us today. I loved all your information.
1: Thank you. This has been this has been awesome. I love connecting with amazing people.